this is Pop Fizz, episode three, from Furious Feminisms to a World of Horror, part one. All right, so we are here. I'm Amanda. I'm Jane. And we are here to do episode three of the Pop Fizz. Yay! Yay! Quarantine edition. Quarantine edition. (laughs) Um, the sound quality may be very different this time because we are recording remotely. So Jane is, uh, actually in a different state from me right now. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't seen each other for a while and, uh, I'm sure that our story is not an original one, uh, for the quarantine experience that everyone is having but we wanted to try to keep this moving for our presumed listeners that may be out there uh, and mostly because we have fun yeah it's um it's good for us and hopefully it's good for whoever's listening kind of keeps things normal and it's it's something that can be normal you know in the midst of everything else being weird yeah and podcast still continues (laughs) sorry (laughs) No, you're good. You're good. Um, so we will try our best. We're using uh, Zencaster for this. Um, and so that's a new experience for both of us. So please bear with us. All right. So uh, I think it's my my turn to bring the nonfiction thing. So yes, it is. In, uh, in the spirit of our podcast, I will get us started. So... Um, my nonfiction thing, which this is probably not going to surprise you, Jane, is, <laughs> is Furious Feminisms, Alternate Routes on Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, this is a small, 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 tiny book of feminist theory from the University of Minnesota Press. And there, there are actually four authors and four separate um, pieces in this. All of them have like really interesting perspectives on Mad Max Fury Road, which is one of my favorite movies. <laughs> but um, the first two are the best, in my opinion. Um, the first one is Just a Warrior at the End of the World by Barbara Gurr. Mm-hmm. And the second one is called is the future disabled by michael gill um yeah by the way she said i might know about it because we've kind of more or less told each other what we were planning on bringing yeah and i usually we don't usually we don't but i got like really excited about this book when a friend (laughs) another friend of mine texted it to me while she was at a, a conference in boston i guess she saw it in a bookstore um yeah so my favorite kind of (laughs) it was cute too because we were like oh we should no we shouldn't talk about it like pretend i said nothing yeah (laughs) like like, don't research this don't look into it we'll we'll talk um yeah i have i have seen fury road good good. um yes because that will definitely help this conversation because if you haven't seen fury road you're gonna be really confused probably um did the listeners come prepared? I, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> we'll find out. So, I'm really, I want to know about these. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. 
So, um, the first one is Just a Warrior at the End of the World, right? So I mentioned that already, that title. Um, mm-hmm. And it's talking about the theme in Mad Max, which is that um, who killed the world? Men killed the world, specifically white men. Oops. It's like the opposite <laughs> of a Beyonce song. It's who ruined the world? Men! Yeah, like... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to our male listeners. It's not your fault. Yeah, no. And what's so what's really interesting about this is she's talking about um how uh basically there's there's it's supposed this this story is supposed to be kind of like distract or deconstructing. That's the word I wanted. I'm sorry. The story is supposed to be deconstructing um these tropes to some extent like uh Mm -hmm. several people have accused it of that there were so many protests against the movie for being like anti-male or um overly feminist or or whatever but she actually says really there's some things in here that aren't that feminist and let's talk about those and so i mean of course I was just like hooked, right? Because yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> because on its surface, this movie really does read as like a, a um, very similar to like Handmaid's Tale, which I think mm-hmm. came out around the same time, or some of these other stories that are uh, rev- somehow like revolting against this patriarchal system. It's also interesting that both The Handmaid's Tale and Mad Max Fury Road. And I'm going to just say, I've seen Fury Road. I have not seen the original trilogy. Uh, I've kind of seen references to like the, the Thunderdome and, and stuff like that. But um, so I don't know how it tracks with the original movies, but at least in Fury Road and similar to Handmaid's Tale, there's this presumption and it, I don't know how right it is, but it's that if the world fell apart, that we'd have this kind of patriarchy that would pop up that would kind of actively imprison women. Right. Um, yeah yeah and that's kind of what she's talking about uh the some of the other authors really dig into like the history of the series um more so and i think she kind of gets into it in here mm -hmm. Uh, i have seen some of the other movies but it's been years honestly i just tina tina turner was in the thunderdome right i think i could be wrong (laughs) you know what i'm on my computer right now Everyone can hear me type, Tina Turner Thunderdome. <laughs> so yes, um, yes, she was. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> she was beyond the Thunderdome. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. So actually, you bring up like a really interesting piece from this uh, article that I really, really enjoyed, and that was that she talks about how. So really, this this writer talks about how Mad Max is playing with really essentialist gendered tropes, right? Uh, Specifically, she references the beautiful soul of the, like, um, correct uh, home wife, homebody, like, woman, um, who's almost uh, virginal in the sense that she is um, innocent in her heart, whether or not she has a spouse if she has that spouse that she functionally belongs to them and the um 
And then she talks about how that concept is inherently racial. Mm. Um, she specifically references how this is how we conceive of white women, but that the really only named woman of color in this film is the one who is quick and able to use a gun, Toast the Knowing, mm. and how in the previous Mad Max films, the only other really prominent woman of color was Tina Turner's character. I was going to say Tina Turner. Yeah. Who was, she was like kind of. A glamour apocalypse bitch. Yes. With all respect. She was in power. That's the, and I, having not seen the movies or anything, but just the images I've seen of her, she, she looked powerful. Yeah. And she was somewhat predatory within the, like she was antagonistic and at points within the um, movie, which honestly, I can't remember the plot of that particular film. Uh, Like I said, it's been years and years since I watched it, but she kind of goes into it in this um, article and it's definitely worth a read with that in that regard. Um, The other thing she says in here that I really loved um, Mm -hmm. is uh, she talks about the just warrior trope for men. So if women are beautiful, white women are beautiful souls, then they're male counterparts are these just warriors that are designed to like protect women and are always capable of violence and are, you know, like a hyper-masculine ideal. Um, that's a really, it's, it's such an archetype is just the warrior to be a warrior who doesn't really have anything else about him that he particularly likes. Like there might be a gentle thing that he likes, like he might like flowers or he might like a kid or his woman, but that's kind of it. Uh, yeah, he's allowed to, I mean, he he has made himself into this, uh, like, organism of violence in order to, like, or inherently, like, violent person in order to protect the beautiful, fragile, innocent things in his life. And she talks specifically about how, while in the narrative, Furiosa kind of takes on some of that role mm-hmm. therefore somewhat uh beast like showing a different path forward for womanhood mm-hmm. one of the issues that she has with the film and it was actually an issue that i had with the film too um is that the only male character that's allowed to kind of do the inverse is uh nux mm. And he has to die. Like he's murdered. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. And the reason that I found that this was so interesting to me is because, do you remember um, the ContraPoints video on men? Did you watch that one? Yes, I did. And uh, I was kind of thinking like, (laughs) you know how like the Little Women movie that just came out really really criticizes not necessarily the original little women itself but the time it came out by saying like if you have a female character she has to either get married or die it's (laughs) it's kind of limiting to men 
<laughs> like if you have emotions, you have to die. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's just the way the world works. <laughs> you either are strong and stoic and don't show emotions, or if you show emotions at all, we'll feel bad for you, but it will lead to your demise. Right. And that's the thing. So like ContraPoints kind of talked about how there, is, there isn't a really solid answer to right now in our stories about men to this to like what men can be outside of this kind of just warrior stereotype those were not the terms she used but um it, it kind of um uh it made me think of a youtube video that i saw i think the uh account is pop culture detective and the video is i think the fantastic masculinity of newt scamander and it's by a male youtuber uh, about the fact that he really likes how Newt Scamander is presented as uh, the hero in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And that's a, a complete side tangent because I have a lot of feelings about the follow-up movie and how Newt is not the protagonist of that movie at all. But the first one he is, and he is sensitive. He's focused on a nurturing role because he's a zookeeper. Mm-hmm. Um, he the, the way that he's presented is more soft and effeminate and he's still the hero and he's still presented in a positive lens for little boys watching. And so the the YouTube video was like praising uh, that movie for portraying a man in this complicated way that that's not just this really awful you have emotions or you don't <laughs> dichotomy. Yeah, and I think that's something that actually so full disclosure i absolutely hate fantastic beasts and where to find them <laughs> i know i know that's fair you're but... not alone <laughs> <laughs> but nude is usually not the reason people don't like the movie the character right. is commander himself <laughs> yeah no newt was great actually um oh i'm totally blanking on his friend's name uh jacob yeah jacob was great i loved him he was a cutie um (laughs) anything in that movie that was about like beasts fantastical beasts and like their adventures together pretty much the scenes that they were in together i was like yay this is great and (laughs) everything which was about 90 percent of the rest of the movie Maybe 75. Maybe I'm being mean. <laughs> Everything else was trash. And yeah. that's my <laughs> But, well, and that's the thing. You're right, Newton. And, and then, and Jacob's a baker. And his whole dream is just to make really beautiful pastries for people. Really creative, beautiful pastries. So you have these two, like, unconventional male characters and their friendship and their interactions are by far the best part of those, that movie. Great, great movie. <laughs> If you could like just clip them out, there was so much potential with that movie too. Like there were so many really fabulous things that could have been done with it. And I was so happy to see like a Jewish baker be kind of the main, main, one of the main characters. And then it was just a trash heap. Do you think, cause I know they had planned on making five. Do you think they're going to barrel down and make another one? I, I haven't I kind of struck the entirety of Fantastic Beasts from my Harry Potter canon, and so I intentionally <laughs> do not follow any of that information. And we'll get back because we need to leave this, but I'm just curious personally, have you, did you see the second movie? No. You shouldn't. No, you shouldn't. It. Um, it, maybe, 
Maybe a future, <laughs> maybe a future podcast we could talk about it. It would make you so angry. It took everything you didn't like and like doubled down. I believe it. Did I mean? Did you read my blog post about how much I hated that movie? <laughs> <laughs> but I highly recommend that YouTube video, Pop Culture Detective, uh, because he's fabulous. I've watched a bunch of his stuff, especially for this topic of um, male portrayal in media and critically looking at it, especially it coming from like, it's good to have both. Well, not both. Cause there's lots of different genders, but like um, multiple perspectives on gender issue. Uh, but I do think that it's just like further reading. I would, I recommended reading for people listening. If you want to find something else to listen to, uh, especially right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So I want to go ahead. Cause I want to talk about this other article too. And I yes. think it, it's very much switching gears because w instead of talking about gender, which is actually like, I know more my general like wheelhouse, um, it is really digging into like the presentation of disability and Mad Max. And I really honestly i think i learned the most from this particular um article in this book uh mm -hmm. which is always great i love um when i have those moments you know um and the the thing here was that while there are a lot of very visible disabled people on screen in mad max there was a question in Fury Road there was a question about is this actually like a positive thing and I definitely recommend that you go read the article because I mm -hmm. don't think that um the writer per se which the writer I should say um for that one is Michael Gill mm -hmm. I believe yeah Michael Gill and um, I don't, I mean, obviously, I um, am not vi like a particularly visibly disabled human being, and I don't have anything that I can like bring to that conversation for personal experience, mm -hmm. but the conversation is one that I'm very interested in. And it, what he said specifically was um, that he, I don't think he ever 100% falls on one side or the other in terms of um, is this all bad or all good in mm -hmm. its representation. However, um, he does say, you know, in this movie, disability is used as a stand-in for other things. And um, mm. specifically, disability is used as a stand-in for here I want to find his words actually hold on just a second yeah disability becomes a sign of the supposed hopelessness for the inhabitants of the world so yeah, yeah. so in a lot that a lot of times disability is specifically tied into either grotesqueness of a character in this in the situation wherein that character is um you know one of the uh 
the kind of male leader characters, there's like three of them or four of them that are pretty prominent or is tied to the um, powerlessness of the character and that the wives again are basically set up as kind of ideal uh, beings um, and fantastical almost fantastical creatures um, because they and where are to not find them disabled. yeah well right. <laughs> no, um, and um, one of the other things that uh, he says in here is that there's a narrative within the story arc and this one I thought was like really really important there's a narrative within the story arc of a kind of a magical cure that mm-hmm. is embodied within the seeds that are carried by the Volvolant. Vol- oh my God, I can't say it. <laughs> I can't say it. The Volvolani? Vol- <laughs> <laughs> this is not good. I'm a podcaster. I should be able to pronounce this word. Um <laughs> The old ladies. The old ladies. The green place. (laughs) The ladies from the green place. (laughs) You're doing great. Thanks. (laughs) So, um, So specifically, he says the following... Healing the earth and using heirloom fruit and vegetables don't immediately cure impairment. Rather, it is an incremental rebuilding using carefully stored seeds and tilling the scorched and dry earth. Um, However, the water spilling all over the ground at the end of the film does negate the carefulness. Actually rebuilding the land and removing toxins from the soil, air, and water will take much longer than a Hollywood fantasy ending. There is no Eden to return to. So what I thought about this is um, a lot of times, and this is a critique that comes up at other points in the book. A lot of times we have this idea of a single savior who's going to come in and like sweep everything, sweep, like change things, like revolutionize the situation, fix everything in a blinding moment of just magical whatever. Yeah. And um, and I think that concept is inherently tied to this just warrior stereotype, especially in this film. Um, and that really, it does take a lot of work to um, really have positive change. And it's not an overnight moment. And it's not, um, it's not easy. Uh, not that I think even the struggle in Mad Max was easy, but mm-hmm. at least it had like a definite ending to it. And to me, this kind of work doesn't have an ending, mm. which means it's not fun to tell a story about per se, uh, or it can be more difficult to tell a story about. But um, I think it's something that, that I would like to see more stories about and I'm interested in exploring in narrative this idea of slow continual work that doesn't ever really like tie up neatly. I think that uh, part of it is just what is, like you said, what is the story structure 
set up to, especially for a movie, what can the story do? And the story could do a lot with the Mad Max world. There's a lot that you could do kind of like with zombie stories that are focused on continual survival and rebuilding uh, the walking dead being like the obvious reference, but then I always go to zombie land and uh, 21 days later as stories that kind of end with a, the world isn't fixed, but something has been fixed and maybe, maybe things will someday gets to some sort of a normal see again. Um, because those are stories that sort of are open-ended in the way that, and they have like this positive focus on, well, the world is still a mess, but we've made this like small change on our part. And maybe if we can make this small change, it could be more of one. And I think it's kind of funny listening to him say, well, there's no Eden to go back to. And to a degree he's right. But one of the wildest things about this, this pandemic has been obviously the interesting ways that nature has rebounded so quickly um, which I don't know, I didn't expect it. I was surprised by how fast uh, things have improved, at least environmentally in some ways, because people just can't drive everywhere. Um, but but I think like all of that is only temporary without- um, True, without lasting change. Mm-hmm. And how- how do we craft the society around that change um, in a way that sustains everyone? Because I think right now the fear is that, yeah, this there's definitely been benefits to the environment. There's been benefits to, to parts of our lives um, that in the way that we've adapted here. Um, but how do we make that something that's sustainable? And I don't know that anybody has the answer to that. That's something we all have to work towards together. Yes. Like you said, with disability, it's it's tricky to come in because, again, I don't really know that I am the right person to have conversations on um, the way that another person would feel. But I think using disability as um, as a sign of something else is like a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Furiosa is probably where a lot of the director's intentions and hopes really are. There might be some really sloppy uses of disability, um, which isn't shocking. It's kind of like, um, it doesn't mean it's good, to be clear. Well, uh, I mean, like, pretty much all of the characters, I mean, that's one of the points that he makes, is like, pretty much all of the characters in the film with the exception of Max and the wives are disabled in some fashion. Um, it's, I think it's telling that the people who are the most visibly disabled mm-hmm. are the ones who are kind of the bad guys. Um, yeah. Like Furios's disability is almost a surprise to the audience. Uh, because right. if there's it, you don't notice it at first. Um, Mm -hmm. and she can, um, it doesn't really, uh, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. I think it's that her profile doesn't change. So your brain doesn't signal that anything is different about her. If that makes sense. Like, yeah, no, I agree. Presents. Yeah. And they use, so she has like an arm that functionally can do things just like a re- like her hand because she is in fact in life an abled actor and they just put like a green glove on her and had her do the scenes and then like 
sub van some you know, <laughs> some st- yeah metal and it raises an interesting question to me because pointing out the wives not having uh, anything does as a story point make sense because um it makes sense that this is probably the reason why they're in this position at all, that they've kind of been hunted down and found uh-huh. um, because they at least appear healthier or have. Um, because the able, able body is more able valued. Is yeah. Yeah. Um, so that makes sense for Max not to have anything is an interesting commentary. And I just think that kind of reflects the movie's tone totally because in a way Max is not the protagonist or the hero of the story and a lot of his heroic moments are him stepping back and taking a backseat to the other characters. Um, which, especially tying in with talking about the ways that men are allowed to be, um, even though, uh, I'm going to blank on his name, the one who paints his mouth silver and dies. Nuts. Um, nuts, yeah. He may show... Favorite. <laughs> he may show emotion and die. Uh, Max Sweet doesn't get cinnamon roll. Yes, too pure for this. <laughs> too pure for this. I'm role. sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's great. Um, Max doesn't get to go as far. He's not allowed to. But in some ways, that makes sense because he's supposed to be the viewpoint character. He's the one the audience is supposed to connect to the most because he's the stranger coming in and learning everything. And especially since I think the directors and producers assumed more men would watch this movie than women uh so he's he's the audience character and so he's not allowed to change that much emotionally but he is allowed to he is allowed to show emotions and he is allowed to um give up needing to be basically the center of the story in a way that actually makes me think of blade runner um the one with the one that just came out, but I, it's like 2049. 2049. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a very similar thing. Ryan Gosling in that one also has to be like, oh, it's not about me. Um, this is not my story, and this is the role I can play in somebody else's story. Um, that might be the reason why Max can't be disabled, but everybody else is, is because if he has that disability, and I, I don't mean this to say that I agree with it, but that might be why the decision was made, that if he had a disability, it would remove the audience from him and they wanted the audience to feel like they were him. Well, I think canonically he wasn't. <laughs> he, well, That's technically true. he is to say, it does have mm. a disability. His mental health is not there. He's like struggling with that the whole time. But uh, I I don't really have anything to say to summarize all this except that, um, you know, I think feminism is fun- fundamentally intersectional. And so this particular book, one of the advantages of it is that each of the four writers brings a different perspective to the book and talks about different aspects of um, Mad Max. Um, so it's definitely worth a read to read all four articles and, um, you know, if you have other, actually, this is a great question. If you have other Mad Max pop, uh, culture critique, I would love to hear about it. So send it to us at, um, realpop.fizz at gmail.com. Thanks guys. <laughs>